welcome back to my investigation of the life and legend of Isabel Gaidi. And now, apparently also, a documentary on the disappearance of the village of the Colvin. It's the 21st of August, 1897, and I've just caught the train. I'm going to be speaking to a guide who's working for a group of tourists who want to explore the Colvin Sands. There's a feeling of jolly anticipation in the air. I'm curious about our guide, who has the Gaelic, Scots and English, which I think gives him a very technicolour view of the land here, because the Colvin intersects these languages, a way marker between the Highland Gaelic and Murray Scots. So let's jump in. Hello, I'm Annie, and I'm hoping to join your group visiting the Culbin today. Would you be able to just introduce yourself for the tape? Hello, Akarich. With pleasure, my friend. My name is Wee Hamish, and I put my hand to more jobs than I have hands. But if you need a guide or a ghillie, then I'm your man. I know these sands as well as anyone can. Like the salmon knows the sea. In fact... I'll even show you the best stretch of water to catch a salmon. If I can tempt you to come back in the gloaming afterlight. Are you talking about poaching? No, never in my day. You are the one speaking of poaching. I'm simply an expert on this segment of coast. So are many people interested in visiting the Culbin then? Oh, there's plenty folks who want to see the mystery of the Culbin for themselves. It's true. The tourists seem really quite thrilled to be exploring the buried village of the Culbin. Well, a couple of lads are carrying a picnic basket for us. There's even speak of mutton pie and lemonade. This region, the Highlands, it's very familiar with dark tourism. From Culloden Battlefield to the scattered Cleveland's villages. There's a lot of Highland sites that connect you immediately to a feeling of loss or pain or sorrow. And I wonder if the Culbin will have a similar vibe. A feeling that something has been lost that you can't regain. So, we Hamish. What do you think attracts people to these places? There is nowhere else in all of Scotland where you can see a desert. For a ruined landscape, it does very well for itself. Plus, many of the stories of this coast enthrall the tourists with dark lore. The witch, the devil, the ghosts. When the sun shines, you might feel like you are in a different country altogether. From the Culbin shores, you can look across the North Sea to the Black Isle, which seems set in rock, the mountains standing strong. Morven, Scaraben, Ben Wibbeth. But the Culbin is ever-changing, ever-moving, alive in sand. It is scarcely ever at rest. Isn't that a bit... unsettling? Makes me feel queasy. Oh, you have no idea the scale of it. There are hills of sand up to a hundred feet in height. 
and they are notorious for changing their appearance completely, sometimes in but a single night. Hmm. Is it possible to map these sands? As much as it is possible to map the waves or the wind. You can draw a line to record a fleeting moment of the force, but the dunes will not obey the boundaries of such marks. This isn't the Calvin I know at all. In my time, things are much more steady and reliable. Well, with the Calvin at least. Well, as you'll see soon, this is a dynamic coast. And when folk think they've solved the puzzle, it moves again. What puzzle do you mean? All of it. The layers of what's buried underneath. The buried village. Is that what you're talking of? There's more than a village under these dunes. The Calvin buries everything. Such as? Well, well. Have you heard of the heydays of smuggling? That tells you something about the shifting nature of the sands, when they can trick even the stealthiest smugglers. A ship once came to port during the night and unloaded a valuable cargo of contraband goods on the shore. The smugglers were supposed to be met by their partners in crime to transport their bounty to its destination. However, their pals didn't show. And so, these smugglers opted to store the illegal goods beneath the slope of one of the great sand hills and recover them later. With the help of a few extra pairs of hands and a wee horse to share the load. So, why did they choose a sand hill? It was a big distinctive mound, easily recognisable. So tall, they would be able to line their mooring boat up to it on their return. Unfortunately for them, a strong westerly wind sprung up in the night time. On the evening of the following day, the smugglers came back with a number of carts to retrieve their goods. They looked for the greatest of the sandhills and headed towards it, though something seemed different. They never for a moment imagined that there could be the smallest difficulty in finding the goods. When the men reached the slope where they thought they had placed their contraband, they found themselves in a complete quandary. You see, there was no trace of their illicit brandy or tobacco. The goods were to be found nowhere. For hours, they traversed the ground again and again, yet still, not a single trace of their valuables could be seen. The men were bewildered by the sand having shifted and obliterated every mark of their movements on the previous night. It became a perpetual question among them. Which of the sandhills contained the missing treasure? Isn't it obvious that sand can move? <laughs> Not in the way of the Culban. There is no other coast like it in all the British Isles. It dances in the wind and settles where it pleases. It doesn't fall in the same way twice. It's like a shuffled pack of cards. You can try to track it, count the cards, but then old Angus does a dodgy shuffle and it's fooling you again. So did the smugglers find their hidden contraband? Well, 
they sure hunted for it. They spread around in all directions in search of their bounty. As an encouragement to them, the moon shone brightly and made every object visible for a great way around. At this time, men were seen everywhere searching for the lost treasure. Some were probing the sand with their whip shafts, others were busily sounding its depth with their hands. All the while, a few of them, with spade and shovel, were casting deep trenches in the sides of the sand hills. They dug and dug in the sands, but found not what they were looking for. The whole night was spent in the desperate search, and after night, the day, and many succeeding days, but all their labour was in vain. The valuable cargo of brandy and tobacco was swallowed up, and now lay snugly under some deep sand drift. But where this is, no one can tell. I myself keep an eye out for any suspicious lumps in the sand. There's more than brandy under there. I'll need to keep an eye out for anything poking out of the sand as well then. But what else is in the sand? Oh, you'll find out soon enough. Our train is getting into the station. As we draw into the station, I overhear the other tourists, who are thrilled and ecstatic to be visiting the Colbin. They talk of it as though it's a very dangerous place. Not only because of the moving sands, but also with pools of unfathomable deepness in the hollows of the hills. I'm intrigued. Although none of these tourists have ever heard of anyone visit the Culbin and then not return, they seem certain that many folks get lost in the Culbin and may never come back, never be heard of again. There's a general consensus that amongst all of the lost things buried in the sands, there has to be a few skeletons down there. I'm not sure I believe this, but there's so many layers of archaeology in the Culbin. Who's to say? We are not expecting to see another soul out at the Culbin today. It's not a place that people go other than for the novelty of it. And it makes me think... Hey, uh, we Hamish. Will we be likely to hear echoes in the Culbin? Echoes? Echoes? You are more likely to get echoes from a rainbow than the Culbin dunes. They shift too much that an echo could never even settle amongst them. With this thought that we'll have nothing but the sandhills to speak to, to absorb our words, our train arrives at its destination.